This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My guest today, he's a friend of mine. We sat on the same board together for Kansas City's DCIM chapter. He knows all kinds of stuff about real estate. He's a mortgage loan originator. He works at Grand Bridge Real Estate Capital. Please help me welcome Frank Sherry. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ferd. Appreciate it. Happy to be here and talk about uh, mobile home park financing with you today. Yeah. How you been? I'm, I'm doing well, man. Uh, staying dry, rainy day here in Kansas City, as you know. But um, yep. Well, Frank, I know a lot about you. For some of our audience that may not, tell us a little more about your background and what you do now. Obviously, also, I know something that you bring to the table that a lot of other lenders don't is your kind of interdisciplinary in the sense that you work on uh, more than just mobile home parks, you do multifamily, other stuff. So tell, give our audience a little bit more about your background and then jump into some specifics. Sure, happy to. So I'm uh, with Grand Bridge Real Estate Capital. I've been with them for 16 years now. Uh, high level, we're uh, one of the largest commercial mortgage banking firms in the country, specialize in providing long-term fixed rate, non-recourse financing for all. Uh, multifamily and commercial property types. So I'm a generalist to work on a lot of different property types, including mobile home parks. Um, work with multiple capital sources as well, including Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD. Work with probably 50 different life insurance companies. We work with Wall Street firms to help uh, the securitize loans. So probably 100 different capital sources all in. So have a, dot, a lot of different buckets uh, of money, so to speak, that we can help place loans depending on the situation and the property and maybe what somebody's trying to do with it. Got it. And I know from talking to the past, typically you're at, you know, I say medium to larger loans. You're not going to deal with the $300,000 loan. You're dealing minimum a million, but oftentimes you're, you're in the five, 10, $20 million range. That's yeah, that's right. Our minimum loans, typically a million dollars. Um, our sweet spots probably in that I'd call it, you know, five to 20. Um, but there's really no maximum. We work with some capital sources. We've taken down some really large portfolios over the years that'll be, you know, 100 plus million. So, um, again, with the number of capital sources we work with, we can we can cover different loan sizes. No, that's great. What are you seeing in today's market, Frank, on, on MHP in particular? And I know with there's a lot going on, kind of macroeconomic, with you know stimulus funds and you know funny money out there everywhere. It's, it's, what's it doing to cost? Materials are up through the roof. Um, I'm real worried about the dollar being devalued more, more and more by the day. Um, what are you seeing from an interest rate? And what, what are some of your projections? And, and we can kind of go back and forth on some of these things. But just interested in your opinion because you, you do touch so many different asset classes and so many different portions of the country. You know, it's a great question. It seems like there is more capital chasing deals and there's actually deals in the marketplace right now um, with a heavy focus. Lenders or, or investors are really chasing multifamily and industrial. Uh, it seems like that's where there's a, a heavy focus. So we've continued to see cap rates um, compress even through the pandemic. Values continue to go up. Um, to your point with, with lumber costs and other material costs up, that's obviously making it more challenging to do new developments, which is also, I think, contributing to some of the increases in value and in some of the existing properties that are out there. 
and mobile home parks have um, they've benefited from that as well. Um, it seems like there's more investors today than there were five and ten years ago that were looking at those property types. So there's there's just a lot of capital out there chasing deals right now. No, I think you're definitely right that there's more people in the marketplace for mobile home parks than ten years ago, five years ago, three weeks ago. I mean, it's just it's just every every day I hear new people jumping in. Um, where do you where do you think cap rates are going to go? Um, for multifamily and for mobile home parks, I mean, seemingly they're continuing to go down. Is there a, mm -hmm. is there a floor? I mean, obviously there's always. I've always thought there should be a spread. Uh, the cap rate should be at least 200 basis points, ideally 300 basis points points or more, higher than the interest rates. And mm -hmm. it seems like it seems like the, the compression is in all asset all these asset classes. Rates are you know pretty flat. Uh, they went up for a minute, kind of stay up down a little bit. But cap rates are, are going lower and lower, so it's like the spread of it's just. I, and, I, and I get the supply and demand of people chasing chasing deals, but I'm, I just I'm just curious what your opinion is. Is are we are we going to see our four caps going to be the norm? Um, are they going to go to three? I know some portfolios, some coastal markets may already be there. I mean, Kansas City, they're not there. Um, where do you, where do you think they go one, two, five years from now? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. They've already, I mean, you look just in the last 24 months, how much they've compressed. Um, there's just so much money chasing these deals on the coast. We've already seen cap rates sub four, you know, they're in the threes already. And now that money continues to come to the Midwest and just keeps driving values up and cap rates down for more. It seems like there should be some type of spread. Um, but if people are worried about, you know, inflation, or maybe they have other motives or why they're trying to get into a property, maybe it's a 10 through one exchange, it's tax avoidance, there could be different reasons. Um, but at least with the flow of capital right now, uh, and where you see where cap rates are on the coast, I think we still have a little bit of room here in, in our markets here in the Midwest. I think you can still see them go down a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think I think so too. I think Midwest in general, they're 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 getting lower and lower, but the, there is still some spread. I mean, do, do you attribute touching on inflation? Do you attribute, you know, and then also when COVID hit, you know, there's there's a sense of security in housing. People are going to undoubtedly need housing. They may not need another restaurant, another sporting store, things like that. I mean, how much do you attribute this, you know, decrease in cap rates to wealth preservation? I mean, if, you're, if you're doing cap, if you're paying a cap rate of 3% and your interest rate is 3%, there's not a lot of cash flow. So are you just preserving, right. just preserving the value of the dollar rather than having sitting in cash equivalents? And how much of it is that versus how much of it do you think is people that are bullish on the asset classes for NOI growth? I think it's more the former myself. Um, I think it's a hard asset. You know, people are concerned is the stock market, is it overvalued? Um, if you're sitting on cash, that's not earning you anything. I mean, there's a lot of factors, but I think people still like to have a hard asset. People need a place to live. That's not going to change. Population is still growing. Um, so, you know, it feels like a safer bet. You know, you could hold it. You could ride it out longer term. If, you know, we're going to have volatility, you're going to have ups and downs in the market. But it, I think a lot of people view it as just a safer place to park their money long term. Got it. No, I, I would agree. Um, let's talk about kind of the, the different offerings for agency, conduit, life insurance lenders. Can you give us kind of the reader's version of what the general differences are, what the terms are? I mean, I know you speak this language all the time. You know, you know what Freddie SBL means. The rest of us may not know what all that stuff means and and how we qualify for that. And then and then pros and cons because. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I want to do agency debt. It's like, yeah, you can't. I mean, I've got a park in Iowa. Those I'd love to get agency debt on it, but it's only 20 pads. So minimum 50, right? And, and then there's minimums of certain uh, dollar value. You know, we, we referenced a million, but if you can maybe 
just give us a quick summary of the distinctions between those so we can better have them in our quiver for if and when we're going to use them. Sure. I'd probably break it up by buckets. One being agency, which, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which everyone's aware of, and they're probably doing the bulk of these. Uh, the second bucket would be life companies. These are the state farms, the nationwide, the world, down to some small life insurance companies people probably have never heard of. Third bucket, I'd probably go with CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. These are the ones that are uh, pooled together, uh, packaged and sold off in tranches uh, in Wall Street. Um, people, again, if you've been in the market, you're probably somewhat familiar with those as well. Also active in the mo uh, mobile home park space. And then finally, the fourth bucket is kind of a mix of banks, debt funds, credit unions, kind of a, a you know, kind of a mixture of different capital sources that are out there. They're all slightly different. Um, high level, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are typically going to be your highest leverage. Um, Fannie Mae, for example, a little bit more aggressive in the mobile home park space. They can go down to a minimum loan amount of a million dollars on an acquisition. They can go up to 80% of your purchase price, assuming there's enough debt service coverage in place, typically a minimum of like a one, two, five debt service coverage. Um, rates today, it, you know, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. There's so many things that get factored in, leverage, loan size, debt service coverage. Um, I, I'd have to give you a pretty wide range. I'd probably say, you know, mid threes to low fours, maybe even up to the mid fours. Pricing has been a little bit wider with the agencies today, but Fannie Mae is really probably uh, doing a more of a bulk of the manufactured housing today. Freddie Mac also is in that space. They're not as competitive in the smaller loan sizes. They have what's called their... Um, Freddie SBO, which stands for Small Balance Loan Program, which is very active on the multifamily side, probably the most active. And the small balance is defined as loans of $7.5 million or less. Very active on the multifamily side. But Freddie SBO actually will not finance uh, mobile home parks right now. Um, surprising. I think at some point in the future, that'll change. So if you go Freddie, you have to go through their conventional program. So it's probably more like a minimum of, of $5 million. So Fannie Mae really eats up the bulk of those smaller, anything below, you know, 1 million to 5 million uh, on the mobile home, uh, home park side. The next bucket, I would move over to life companies. Typically the, the leverage isn't going to be as high. The want to be more probably 65, maybe 70% max leverage. They can be more flexible in their terms. They can also be more aggressive in their rates. I'd tell you today, uh, you know, a small two or $3 million loan, call it 65% of purchase. Life companies could be, you know, in the low threes, low to mid threes on their rate. So more aggressive on the rate, but lower leverage. So that's kind of the big trade-off you probably have between an agency execution and a life company execution. CMBS, third bucket, I'd probably put somewhere in the middle. Leverage, not quite as high as agency, but it will be higher than life company. Um, and rates, I'd say right now today, probably a little bit more aggressive uh, on these smaller deals or comparable to what we're seeing with agency. They'll also do maybe some, some more challenging parks and we can get to that, like what lenders look for, but they might do some things that maybe won't qualify for um, an agency execution. So, and then finally, you know, banks, credit unions, um, those other types of buckets of money, debt funds, more of a recourse type of lender. Uh, I'm going to look a little bit more at the strength of the borrower, a um, little bit different than the first three that are more permanent products. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I want to touch on that last item you just mentioned on strength of the borrower and recourse. I know a lot of, I see people call, they'll call me sometimes, hey, I want to do non-recourse because I don't have a credit. 
and I can't get, they've been told no for a car. They've been told no for a house. They've been told no for a local bank. But you and I know it's, it's non-recourse doesn't mean everybody can get approved. Um, what are the borrower requirements from a you know, criminal background or lack thereof, net, a general net worth, general liquidity or general experience standpoint that's necessary to check that box to be eligible to sign, sign on a non-recourse loan with one of these providers? Yeah, no, good question. It, 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 it varies slightly um, with each lender. I would say, generally speaking, lenders are looking for a combined net worth. So say you have two or three individuals that are coming together to buy a property. They'll look at a combined net worth. They'd like to see at least equal to or greater than the loan amount. And they like to see liquidity, combined liquidity. Um, typically, again, general rule of thumb, maybe 12 months of debt service combined between the, the, the owners. Okay, that's, that's good. So, I mean, as you get bigger and bigger on loans, it's just, do they continue to reevaluate that? If yeah. that works a million the first time, you can get a million, but you want to do a five million dollar loan the next time, you got a five million dollar net worth, or is it one of those? Because at some point, you got man, you got a yeah, a ten, you got a twenty. It's, it seems like it becomes harder to keep pace with the the re, the you know the acquisition. I would think. Right. No. Good question. That's probably uh, I should have clarified. That's probably more on small balance loans. As they get larger, you know, say somebody's doing a twenty five million dollar loan, maybe a portfolio they're probably going to back off um, the requirement for the net worth, but there will be still be a pretty good uh, focus on liquidity um, for sure. Yeah. So you're, you're right. Cause if you're, you're starting to get some larger loans that could be tough to qualify. Okay, good. That makes sense. I just went through one of these Fannie Mae refinances and uh, mm -hmm. the timing of it took longer than I would have liked. And then as such, the interest rate um, in the marketplace went up. Uh, you know, somewhat considerably relative to my, you know, quoted interest rate when I began the process. And as you know, mm -hmm. I was not able to lock in the rate until all of the underwriting was done. And basically we locked the rate in three days before closing in a 90 day process. So for the first 87 days, I was subject to interest rate risk. Um, what was interesting to me was the lender, you know, you know, quote, felt bad about that. And they, they reduced their, their spread or their yield. Which makes me wonder why didn't they just why don't they just do that all the time? You know, it's obviously there's profit in there for the lender, and they didn't charge any fees or points, or they, it was their their profit is in the spread. Um, can you explain okay. to us how that pricing works and and how how you go about evaluating that for your clients? And, you know, if, if you got five companies that want to make the loan, if I got a nice loan at one two three Main Street for five million bucks, presumably you can take it to a number of options, and the, and the different difference that you just mentioned, like uh, LTV interest rate, those are factors. But um, in, in the mm -hmm. same bucket, there are there are numerous people you could take a loan to through Fannie, through Fannie's originators, or, um, mm -hmm. or how, how can you explain to us that process, how you evaluate that, and how those spreads work. Yeah, I mean the Fannie uh, a loan originated with Fannie Mae uh, underwriters ultimately sold off into the secondary market. It's really, I mean, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, are basically the two largest securitized lenders um, in the market. So that it's a fluid market. It's changing. Those spreads, those investor spreads, there's, there's multiple components to kind of make up that spread. And, and Fannie and Freddie typically price as a spread over a benchmark. For example, the most common being a 10-year loan term. So they price as a spread over the 10-year U.S. Treasury. So you have a couple of moving parts there, obviously, the Treasury yield. 
Um, plus within the spread, there's some, there's some components there that are again, changing on a daily basis with the market. Where you can see some differences, if we are, for example, able to underwrite to a higher debt service coverage, that will improve your spread. Um, if we are underwriting to a lower LTV, that will also improve your spread. So that's where you might see some variations, maybe from one lender to the next, depending on how aggressive somebody might be able to get with their underwriting. Um, it's kind of a fine line. We have to be aggressive, but also have to be able to deliver um, in what we tell our borrower we can bring to the table. So that's, that's why you might see some variations, uh, slight variations from one lender to the next. No, that, that makes that makes some sense. I mean, I know I, I was given the options. If you want to go 55 LTV, here's your rate. 65, here's yep. your rate. 75, here's your rate. And then mobile home parks, there's these additional tenant, screen, tenant protections, tenant lease provisions that came out mm -hmm. relatively recently. And then if you put those in your lease addendums, you got like six months post-closing post to do it. Well, then, or you get default, you know, theory, then you get a lower rate. So those are, well, it's a, that makes sense. That's it. It's a big discount. I mean, you can get up to 40, 45 basis point discount if you're willing to do that. So it makes a lot of sense, especially if you think you're going to hold it long-term, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it really does. And then um, I looked, there's like eight or nine provisions and, and really they were, I think all but one of them, I already had in my lease. One of them, oh, that's yeah. not a big deal. It's like, okay, it's just it's basically like, don't be a jerk landlord and, you know, <laughs> proper notice before you decrease rate, increase rent, don't, you know, don't offer people a month-to-month -month lease where you can jack the rent up every two months or something like that. I mean, um, th things of things of that sort. But um, now that that's interesting. I'm glad you're able to help us kind of unravel some some of these terms. Yeah. The other term that I, I hope you can enlighten us on a little bit is is yield is either a combination of yield maintenance or prepay essentially prepayment penalties, yield maintenance, and and or defeasance because. Um, I feel like these these are complex complex concepts. Everybody kind of knows what a prepayment penalty is, but how they calculate them and how painful it's going to be, depending on the time of your loan. I feel like borrowers you probably see it all the time. Borrowers don't recognize how painful it is. I'm I'm in the middle of a lawsuit with a client now, where the, the my client's buying the park, and the seller finds out at closing when he's got to pay off his existing CMBS loan that there's a three hundred thousand dollar prepayment penalty, and he's like, well, I'm not going to close them. It's like you have to close. You have to close the deal, and he and he said no. So we're suing him for specific performance to make sure he gets his butt to the closing table. But had he known about this big penalty that was in his loan docs that nobody seemingly reads, he probably would not have signed the contract. He would have waited out the loan, or he would have done something. Yeah. And I've and I've got several stories like that that people are like, "Whoa, you mean what?" So maybe give us a a break brief breakdown, and then maybe a hypothetical, if, you know, if I, if I just got my new loan today and tomorrow I'm going to sell the park to Frank, what does that look like from an assumption of the loan? What does it look like from a payoff and or, and or am I stuck until my loan turns out at uh, year 10? Yeah, no, good questions. Um, I would say most loans in the permanent market, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Life Company, CMBS are assumable. So if it is a situation where you think you're going to hold it long-term, something's changed, plans have changed, all of a sudden you're two years into a 10-year loan, yet you're staring at a, a pretty big prepayment penalty. A loan assumption is probably, um, in that scenario, the best way to go. You'd probably want to advise the buyer on the front end that you're not selling it free and clear, that they're going to have to assume the existing debt. Um, yield maintenance, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat challenging to describe because it's, it's, there's some variables involved. The two main variables, how much loan term remains on the existing loan, 
and then what is the corresponding treasury? So what I mean by that, let's say you did an original 10 million, uh, 10 year loan term. Let's say you're in year five now, somebody makes an offer and you just can't pass up. So you have five years left on your loan term. The lender will compare the two main variables. They're gonna say, well, your interest rate, let's just say was 5%. They're gonna say, well, now, since you have five years left on your loan term, what is the five-year treasury yield? Essentially, if they get paid off early and they want to turn around and immediately invest in treasuries to try to maintain the yield they were expecting, they would invest in a five-year treasury. So say the five-year treasury is at a 3% yield. Well, there's a 2% gap. There's a two-point gap between the rate they were collecting and now where they can reinvest. Very kind of summary is a, it's a net present value calculation where they maintain that yield and it covers that 2% gap. So the two biggest variables, what is the corresponding treasury of compared to your remaining loan term and then how much loan term is outstanding. That's, that's a great explanation um, for a complex concept. And I've seen those formulas in the exhibits, the loan docs, and it's, it's a mess. But, um, so to take it even further, if in my 10 year loan, I was on year nine and six months, I only had six months left, and my original interest rate was 5% and the current five-year treasury is 4.9%, it's not going to be that painful because I've only got a little bit of time left to maintain and only a little bit of spread. Would that be an That's answer? correct. I also, yeah, I would, I would also add to most yield maintenance um, calculations, they have a minimum of a 1%. So there will never be a situation where the short-term rate might actually be above your rates where you're going to pay off your loan and the lender is going to write you a check. So there's always a greater of yield maintenance or 1%. I bring that up because that question does come up sometimes. They think somebody thinks they might actually be able to collect money with an early payoff. Um, I know that did happen in some situations in the past with swaps um, that some banks were doing. They didn't have a minimum in there and people were actually maybe collecting funds when they paid off a loan. But no, you will have the greater of yield maintenance or 1%. Most lenders, uh, the last 90 to 120 days, it's open at par. And really with an agency loan, you get to that last six month window, you'd probably go to a 1% prepayment penalty as well. So um, at that point, yeah, you're, if you were going by the letter of the law, the yield maintenance calculation, it would be, it would be minimal. So you'd be hitting that, that 1% minimum at that point in time. Got it. How, how high would the percentage be just to be no roughly from looking at one, if it was that example, you used a 2% spread instead of a year five, if I did it in year two and I had eight years left. Are we talking, is that, is that equivalent to, is that equivalent to like a 5% penalty or how high does that go? If you have eight years left, I mean, I, I've seen calculations if there's a lot of, a lot of loan term left and depending on the gap in the, the actual rate versus the corresponding treasury, I've seen 10, 15, 20 plus percent penalties. Yeah. So that's why the, that, that, that right there is exactly why these loans have a loan assumption clause. Because right. um, you know nobody would ever pay a twenty percent prepayment penalty, uh, but obviously a, a buyer could step in and, and assume that loan and kind of move forward with it. Yeah, and, and the, the downside for the buyer though is they're kind of stuck with your interest rate and stuck with your leverage. So if I bought it for five million and I'm selling to Frank for eight million, I got a four million dollar loan to assume Frank's only going to get a four million dollar loan or an eight percent eight million dollar purchase, which means low LTV. Mm -hmm. Unless you get what a supplemental or a second, how, how would the, how would you go about it in that situation? Fannie Mae has a supplemental program. That's right. It's basically secondary financing they'll put behind their first. Um, they, it says they can take it back up to the original LTV. Now there are, you know, some 
so depending on how much loan term is remaining, uh, there's some stress tests and whatnot that a lot of times you might not get all the way back up to that remaining LTV. They also have a refinance test that they have to run. So I always caution people when they start looking at supplementals. Sometimes it sounds a little bit better than it actually is once you get into the numbers. But yes, that is a way to bridge the gap a little bit um, in those situations. But yeah, if you know if you have a property and you're selling it um, and, and a buyer has to assume the loan, that could limit the buyer pool a little bit because you're right, somebody might have to bring some more equity to the table in that situation. Right, that's what I've looked at it as a concern is the buyers have to bring more equity. You got to limit your buyer pool. Typically, somebody's already in the Fannie Freddie pipeline or approvable. Um, just it limits your exit strategy. So if you're if you're planning on selling, mm -hmm. you may want to reconsider the, the long term. Yeah. That, you know, and do something else. But, you know, that's one of the questions we always ask our clients when we talk to them up front. Like, you know, what is your goal with this property? What are you ultimately trying to do with it? Is this something you're going to keep in the family and pass down to your kids? Is this something you think you might sell in two or three years? We would never want to put a borrower into a long-term loan if they think they're going to do something with the asset in two or three years. So um, it's our job to maybe ask those questions and really understand what they're trying to do with the property. And then we kind of go out and try to, with all of our capital sources, find what fits best with what they're ultimately trying to accomplish. Oh, that's good. That's definitely good to know and good that you guys do that. Tell me, on the, we finished our hypothetical here on this. Um, I got my 10-year term. What happens at year 10? What does that process look like? I haven't got, yep. I haven't got through one that's gone to, I've, got, have, I've never had the same loan hit year 10 yet. <laughs> I think I know what happens. It's just like, a, you know, with the balloon and all that, but, but I, I'm curious on um, how you can, how you explain it as far as what happens when, when year 10 comes as far as, you know, a re, essentially a refinance, refinance or changing terms or, or then do, and then, then when I sell, you know, what's that look like? Yeah, good question. So yeah, at the end of that, that loan maturity, um, you either need to refinance or sell or pay off the loan, however that might be. I guess it could be with cash or other proceeds you might have available. So we'll typically advise our clients, you know, you can get started six, nine, 12 months in advance. Uh, we'll start sizing deals, start tracking it for them, start helping to monitor, help make sure that the numbers are kind of tracking and trending and are going to show in the best light when we take it back out to refinance it. Uh, most loans have that 90 to 120 day window at the end where there's no penalty. So we can kind of time it up to where obviously you're, you're paying it off in that window. Right. Um, but again, it, it doesn't hurt to get started a little bit sooner rather than later on that. Uh, just so you're not bumping up against the clock. It's, it makes sense. What other, what other tips can you give us, Frank, for uh, MHP borrowers or I mean, there any other general strategy you can, you can give us to get approved and to maximize our, our value and maximize our, our investments? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think I think lenders who will lend against mobile home parks, uh, some other property types are looking for good quality properties. They're looking for properties that are well located. They're looking for properties with strong, stable occupancy history, strong, stable cash flow, uh, good collections history. There's been a huge focus on rent collections here. With COVID, everyone was concerned with all the job losses, what's going to happen. Um, our tenants not going to be able to pay their rent. So having you know really strong collections, not having much bad debt, these are things that are looked at at all property types, but obviously multifamily and mobile home parks. Um, these are the type of things that lenders really look for. Quality of park. Um, Fannie Mae will typically tell you they want to see a three-star park or above. Now, it, that star rating system, you know, some people tell you it's, it's not, not a great system. I would say more specifically, things they're typically looking for, um, paved roads and curbs, um, skirting, 
designated parking, paved parking. Those are some of the things, typically more double wides versus single wides. Um, from a utility perspective, you know, a public utilities are, are favored. It doesn't mean though, if you have private utilities, it can't be financed. It doesn't mean if you have a higher percentage of single wides versus double wides that it can't be financed. We're just gonna have to do a little bit more digging, kind of explain, hey, this is the market in this particular location. Um, but again, high level, these are, these are some of the general things most lenders will look for. Um, another one's park owned homes. Um, for example, Fannie Mae, I think with their charter, they can go up to 35% of the owns can be park owned, but they will not give you any credit for the rent that is generated from those homes. So they will only focus on the pad rent. So we will have to carve out uh, any, any income and expenses that might be associated with park owned homes. But again, at the end of the day, like most property types, lenders are looking for good properties, well-located, good, strong, stable cash flows. No, makes sense. Uh, that's, I'm with you that the star system's a little broken. Um, I don't think people, I don't even came to find all the star systems and I do this for a living. I'm just like, here's what's got this, 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 this. And yep. I just did a refinance on a Fannie deal that I would have called it a two star. Um, <laughs> it's got three double wides and 50 single wides and they're all 1970s and mm -hmm. it's not that sexy, but yeah. the roads are nice. The homes are taken care of and you know, it's a nice clean park, but it's, it's definitely not, uh, I wouldn't call it three or four or five star, but it's, you know, it, income's good. Collections are good. Um, good infrastructure. And, yeah. and those are, those, those seem to carry the day more than it's not on a picture of a magazine. There's no common well, areas. My, my lawn mowing bill is zero to give you an idea. There's, there's no, there's zero common areas. <laughs> there's one <laughs> playground that has a mulch under it and uh, that's it. So it's like, Hey, this is great. So, yeah. Well, and just because something's not a three-star doesn't mean it's not financeable. I mean, if you have an older park, doesn't have the star rating, if it has a good, strong, stable occupancy history and a cash flow that we can look to, that it might not qualify for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, but CMBS might look at it. Uh, one of our other lenders might look at it as well. So there's other options out there. If you have a good, stable history, I think that's more important. No, I think I agree. And collection, I know collections are a big deal right now industry-wide and, mm -hmm. and I know the agencies are definitely looking at it too every every month you're in the process every what's this what's this what's it you know and they're pretty uh you know they're pretty detailed on that which they, they, they should be but it's um it's been it's been more challenging in general uh, with collections right now but uh, this is great stuff Frank anything mm -hmm. else before we part otherwise maybe tell us where can where can people find you to get started on a loan yeah I mean obviously we kind of it, there's a lot of details you can get into and get into the weeds. I don't want to get into too much of that here on this call, but happy to discuss. Um, if somebody's kicking the tires on something, we're always happy to spec the time, get involved early. Um, we're happy to put out a soft quote. It might help you sharpen your pencil when you're maybe making an offer, give you a better chance to potentially win that win that bid. So happy to do it. Um, again, I mentioned I'm with Grandbridge Real Estate Capital. You could reach me. I'm just going to go ahead and give you my office number. I think that's the fastest and easiest way to reach me. 913 748 four, four, five, three, feel free. Give me a call. Happy to walk through, um, give you more details or look at any deals and help you out any way I can. All right. Sounds good, Frank. I appreciate it. Fur is great. Good talking to you. All right. See you soon. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the mobile home park lawyer podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com. 
for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.